So good morning once again. Um, uh, I'm really thrilled this morning to be able to pick up the next installment on uh, in this uh, collection of talks we have on this uh, strange new world that we live in. I do want to say this, first of all, uh, again, welcome to our online family and remind you that we have a team of people that are in Winslow this weekend helping with the Navajo people there, serving them and caring for them in the name of Jesus. So would you remember to pray for them that uh, the presence of Jesus would be experienced through the work that they're doing there. Uh, so, uh, Strange New World. You might be new to this series and, uh, or you know like one week passed and now you totally forget like what we were talking about, right? So, just not naming names or anything, I just want to kind of help catch us up a little bit so that we can take the next part of this installment of how do we live in this strange new world. Well, this is where we started. We, it really is a bit of a strange world from where it was not only just two decades ago, but even it seems over the last three years with COVID, you know, the isolation that it created and the tension in families and relationships and just the chaos around that. We're, we're kind of recovered, but not entirely recovered from that. And all, well, all that's going on, maybe some of what went on has uh, precipitated what is happening now, but we see global tensions uh, in so many different places where it seems like there's a, a standoff uh, around like nuclear weapons and all of that stuff, that chaos in our world. For some of us, that's kind of new, at least on the level that it's at, and these things just keep coming at us. The economic convulsions that we've been in in the last while, and is a recession on the table? Is it not? Uh, these kinds of things that have created so much uncertainty in so many ways for us, and trying to navigate how do we live in this world as followers of Jesus? The the sexual revolution that we have experienced, where uh, promiscuity has been normalized and homosexuality has been normalized, and how do we live in that? And what does God have to say to that? And you know, it's just the reality of the world that we live in. It just feels like it's a strange new world. So many different things that are coming our way. And so we've been trying to think through, how do we do that as followers of Jesus? Uh, if you look at the scriptures, they would su suggest that maybe the right response as followers of Jesus is not to throw stones at our culture, not to castigate the culture for like who the culture is, would suggest maybe don't isolate from it, just remove ourselves from it, but to somehow infiltrate it in a loving and gracious and truthful way. How do we do that? How is it that followers of Jesus can do that in this kind of what feels like chaos? And we've been thinking through, like this is actually for us as followers of Jesus, a perfectly safe world to live in. Not because the world is safe, but because Jesus is present and he's got his arms around it and we belong to him and he purchased us for himself to not isolate in this world, but to influence the world just as he did in his strange new world that he entered into. And so we've been thinking, how do we do that? And one of the ways that we've been doing this and do this really quickly is we've been thinking, how did we get here? Like, what happened over these 2,000 years since Jesus came to planet Earth? And we've used this diagram as a bit of an idea for how that works. So there are really three eras. One era, like the first 1,500 years following Jesus' death and resurrection, is kind of the pre-modern world where the general idea was this, that God as uh, kind of the control of the matter of the world, and he's living that out through the church. And since the king was the head of the church, this is how he's revealing truth to the world. 
if the truth is going to be known to the world, it's going to be the church that presents that to them, as if they're a voice for God. And the church is a voice on behalf of the people to God. And uh, we function like that for about 1,500 years. And then uh, new ideas began to emerge. Some really smart people, in their own mind at least, but I think they were really smart, came along and said, you know something, the, the whole God and church and truth thing has really disappointed us. We haven't really had any influence and input on it. We've just been told what to do. And well, we're, we're free-thinking kinds of people. We're smart. We can figure some stuff out. And a movement began that really was an enlightenment movement is what it became known as where individual people began to think through. I've got some ideas on this. We're not even sure God speaks to this. Is One of them, in fact, said God's dead. He had concluded that God didn't exist. And it's out of that thinking that this whole new movement called modernism comes into it. And now reason and thoughtfulness and rationality is going to be the center of truth. So it's no longer the church or the king. It's now us really smart people who've got this figured out. And we're going to tell the world how, based on reason, this works. And then the 1900s happened. And it was that century of chaos with world wars and continental wars and so much upheaval in our world. And the realization was, okay, so the church may not have the answer for truth, but for sure this isn't working out where we can rationally think it through. Oh, I know it's going to be up to me now. I can't trust those others, so I'm going to put myself at the center of my world, and I'm going to determine what truth is. And then lo and behold, the culture around us came along and goes, that's right, you do you. And if it's going to be, it's up to you, you know, like that's right. And so now we got endorsement of culture. And so each individual person is the source of truth themselves and how I feel about things and how I feel about this world. Well, that's got to be right because, well, to your own self be true, right? And that has created some of this chaos that we are in today, this uncertainty. Well, here's an interesting thing. Uh, we started with a passage of scripture that we have used each week, and it's taken from something that Paul wrote. It's from Romans chapter 12, and this is what he says. He says, look, if that's the pattern of the world, and he had his own patterns in his world, he said, don't conform to that pattern. There must be a different way. Here's what it is. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Rethink the thing. Rethink it. Because it's not working. Rethink it. And as you do and you renew your mind around who God is and what Jesus has done, then you're going to be able to figure out, so to speak, able to test and prove what God's will is in this strange new world. Well, here's the wonderful thing that God has given us to help us with that part, renewing of your mind, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He gave us a book. I just say that, and you know what book I'm talking about, right? Yeah? It's the Bible, just so you would know. Yeah, it's, you know, it's the most read book in all the world. It's the most, uh, most uh, sold more copies of it than anything else. There are more people have died because they own it than for any other book. It's translated into 3,400 languages. It's amazing. It's absolutely the most amazing book. Even if it was just a book, it would be stellar and amazing and wonderful. And here's the thing. Some of us see it as this sacred document that we, it's almost too sacred to read, and so we don't read it. Some find it totally confusing. Like, what is that? Like, what's Leviticus? Like, come on. Who thought to put that in the book, right? 
Other people look at it and they try to read it and they go, I don't. These and thou's and henceforth and forevermore and sacerdotalism and all those other things, I'm just not reading it. I can't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. Where others will come along and go, that, that's the guide for life for me. I open it up and I can't, it's mysterious. It speaks to me. It directs me. It convicts me. It's like no other book I have in my library. All this whole span of how we approach the Bible. Why? Well, it has something to do with that diagram I just put up of the different eras of life. So let's look at this. Let's lay the Bible over top of it. Did any of you grow up with the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So? Okay, It's actually not true. Oops, right? A, those words are never found in the, in the Bible. Jesus loves you. Those exact words aren't found. Secondly, uh, we know that Jesus loves us, not because the Bible tells us so. We know it because something happened in 30 AD in Jerusalem. An actual event happened. We know about that. That's what we know. So let's take this book and say, well, why, why is it approached so diversely in our culture and our world? So if you go back to the pre-modernism era, nobody owned a Bible. In fact, for the first couple of hundred years, there was no Bible. There wasn't. And then the Bible starts to be hand-printed, but it was so costly, so expensive, so rare, nobody owned one. Besides, the church owned it. And the church explained it. And the church had truth. Why would you possibly need it? We'll tell you what it says. And for 1,500 years, that's the way it was. And then a printing press came along. And suddenly, what used to be handwritten, meticulously, carefully, accurately, by dedicated scholars and scribes, suddenly it could be mass-produced and everybody could have one. However, these really smart guys came along and said, there's a bunch of stories in there that just don't make any rational sense. There are things like miracles. Come on. Miracles like that don't, you can't, like people don't come from death to life. That's fantasy. That's myth. People don't get healed and, you know, someone makes some mud and puts it on their eyes and voila. You can't honestly believe that stuff, right? It's not true. It's not accurate. It's just because they really wanted it to be that way. And this resurrection thing of Jesus, <laughs> who would in their right mind ever believe that? And so the book became to be questioned. And it's okay to question it. But it became questioned by cynics and skeptics and people who sought to undermine the scripture because it didn't fit the rational world. And so suddenly you have this book that is, is it, isn't it, should it be, do we, don't, yes, no. Now go to the postmodern world where I'm at the center of thought, right? Truth is now in me. Now I can take the book and I can interpret it how I want to interpret it. So I love the salvation piece. In fact, I think 
everybody makes it in the end. That's probably what it says. And I'm holding on to that. But you know, this stuff about like repentance, this stuff about owning my, my waywardness and my independence of God. And if I don't, I don't experience life forever with him. Not into that. No, I'm going to reject that. Like keep that. This moral teaching in the Bible it's great for others. You just you be you. You believe what you want to believe. But as for me, I think I'm going to pick some pieces and let some other pieces go. That's the end result of me being on the throne of my world and me being the source of truth. I can pick and choose. This is why 88% of Americans in a recent survey would have said this. I have a syncretic view of life. That is, I pick and choose whatever I want, what works for me, because we live over here now. So, what do we do with this? What is the Bible? Is it believable? Is it something that we should hold on to? And, well, I guess all of us, depending on where we are in our walk with Jesus or longevity in the church or where we live in this strange new world, might have a different and various opinions on that. So what I would like to do is I'd like to, for just a minute, take you to what the original writers thought the book was all about, what the, how they approached it, how they saw it. And there's two elements that they speak of. One of them is that it is inspired by God. What does that mean? Well, literally, it means that it was breathed by God. Like, like what? They sat at a table and went, um... Um, and God downloaded magically what they were to write, and they just dictated it. Is that what it means? No. It means that God's Spirit, who raised Jesus from death to life, so inhabits people who say yes to him that he begins to influence them, either conversationally or privately or in a group of people through discussion, through experiences in life. He takes all of that, and then he forms people. That is likely how these original authors wrote what they saw and experienced. It, it's a bit mysterious, but it isn't mystical. But it's inspired. It's breathed by God. Secondly, it's inerrant. And if anybody's going to push back on the Bible when we say it's inerrant, or it, it's, it's from God, it's going to be on this inerrancy question. Because you can, if you look, you can find some inconsistencies. You can. They're there. However, here's the amazing thing. This book that's written by different people at different times in different places over a long period of time has no material discrepancy across it. Nothing that really makes difference in it. There are a few minor details here and there that are different, but as a whole, it's a contiguous whole. But this is what we have to remember. Especially, and this is referring to the original documents written by the original writers. Has stuff changed over the years? Have other people added to it and changed it? Yeah, they have. Without authority, probably. But this refers to those original documents that were written. Inspired and inerrant. Actually, this is what they say about it. This is Peter. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy or no revelation of God, if you will, through Scripture came about by that person's, that prophet's own interpretation, contrary to 
postmodern, didn't come out of that, uh, their own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul writes to Timothy. He says, look, Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So here's what happens, okay? So you have this inspired, inerrant word of God, and now you plug it into this postmodern world, okay? And the moment that you are not sure that it's inspired, the moment you're not sure that it's inerrant, the moment that someone comes along and causes you to question or think or doubt and says miracles don't happen, you're the, you're the curator of truth. That's who you are. That's, what, that's your role in this culture. You curate what's true and what's not. Here's what happens. The Bible loses its authority in our world. It no longer speaks truth that could be difficult that might be somewhat confusing and would take some study and some learning. It no longer has that. It's now squarely in the realm of interpretation. And you can interpret it how you want. You can interpret it how you want. You can interpret it this way. And then we lose our way with the Bible. What I'd like to do for just a few minutes is I'd like to look through a little bit of history, a timeline of how this came about because... Christianity, as we live it today, is this rare and beautiful thing not based on what the Bible tells us. The Bible is based on what happened historically. Real people experiencing something amazing and otherworldly, if you will, and they wrote it down. And there's a whole history to this. The Bible does not exist because of Christianity. Or the Bible exists because of Christianity. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. Let me show you this. This isn't original with me, but I want to show you this timeline. We know what the significance of 30 AD. It's the, in and about that time, it's the, in Jerusalem, it's where Christ was, Jesus was crucified, and he came back to life. Just think about that for a second comes back to life. And over the next couple of months, this group of people who saw him alive, saw him die, saw him alive. They start going out into the streets of Jerusalem and they go, hey, guess what we experienced? You, you know, Jesus and people knew Jesus. Well, we saw him die. Yep. That we all saw that on Golgotha, but we saw him alive. And we've communicated with him. And we've spoken with him. And some of us put their hands in the wound in his side. And we looked at his hands and his feet. We saw him. We experienced him. We knew that we know that he's alive. We know that. And they couldn't stop talking about it. And they turned to Jewish and Roman leaders and said, you better say sorry for that. Because he's alive. We saw him. And that's a risky thing to do. And it became risky for them. And many of them went through really difficult times, some at the hands of Paul, the future apostle, who tried to wipe out the Christian movement over the course of many years. But it just wouldn't go away because it wasn't a theory. It was history. It actually happened. And these folks wrote about it. And then if you spring ahead a little bit, 
at our timeline, you get to 70 AD and the temple is destroyed. So what's the significance of this? Well, Vespasian is one of the Roman tetrarchs. He's in charge of this part of the Roman Empire, this marginalized fringe area to the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And uh, he does not like Jewish people. And he doesn't like Christians, who he sees as a kind of a knockoff cult of the Jewish people. And uh, he's uh, incredibly mean-spirited, as many uh, tetrarchs and, and Caesars have been before him. And so the nation of Israel revolts in a whole variety of ways. And Vespasian says, I'm going to crush that. Once and for all, those renegade rebel Jewish people, I'm going to wipe them out. And he begins this march from the northern part of Israel through towns and villages on his way to Jerusalem. And as he does, he's killing and imprisoning people. He's enslaving people. In fact, historians tell us so many people were enslaved during that period of time that he crashed the slave market. The price of slaves went down because he flooded the market with new slaves. It's an amazing thing. Along the way, over this four-year campaign, he gets called back to Rome where he's going to be installed as the new emperor, leaves his son Titus in charge, and Titus finishes the job. He pushes all the people down to Jerusalem, corrals them into the city, those that haven't fled or been killed. He builds a wall all the way around Jerusalem, and on August the 6th of 70 AD, he sieges the city, and he, the city falls. He ransacks it, burns it to the ground, including the temple for the Jews. He annihilates the whole deal. Now, why would that be important? It's not just important as a historical event, but here's what's interesting. It's never recorded in the Bible. Not once. Such a historic event that would have impacted the writers of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul. They all must have experienced this. Maybe they lost family members. Maybe they themselves were caught up in it. Maybe they had family members that were crucified or sent off to say, how could they not record it? Such a significant event. It might be, I believe it is, because it hadn't happened yet when they wrote it. When they wrote their story of Jesus, it hadn't happened yet. So why does that matter? Here's why that matters. is because the, the accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection, which is the event of critical importance here, okay? The people who saw it and wrote it, wrote about it early on. Not years down the road. Not a hundred years down the road. Well, who would ever think that? Modernist thinkers thought that. They came up with this idea. The Bible could not possibly, the New Testament documents in particular, could not have been written that close to the actual event. They had to have been written like 100 years later. And the reason they wanted to do that is they wanted to discredit the Bible because rationally, I said, like, miracles don't happen, resurrections don't happen. So they're looking for an explanation for how can so many people believe this? We can't agree that it happened. Oh, well, we know this. It takes about 70 years for a legend to be spoken about publicly as a real event. So if we stretch that out far enough, we're just going to be able to look back and go, see, like, <laughs> it was just a legend. It was just a myth. Besides, we know that miracles like resurrections don't happen. But those Christians, the only way they get traction, their whole thing, their whole movement is built on a resurrection. If we can discredit the resurrection, we discredit them. And they will be of no influence in this world. That's why the writing of these eyewitnesses' story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, happening so close, 
is that it adds forensic credibility to their story. Not stretched out. That's why that matters so much. The second thing that matters so much is how painstakingly they wrote their story, how they wanted accuracy. Like Luke, Dr. Luke in particular, who starts his story out this way, I have thoroughly researched all this stuff. And then he does something like this. He writes this in Luke chapter 3. He says, now just get how precise this is. Precise time, precise people, precise titles, precise locations. Why? Because he's saying, fact check me if you want to. Go ahead, check it out. Because this is what happened in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria and Traconitus and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. You can go to any one of those people and check that out if you want. Go ahead. But it all happened close to the scene, not a hundred years down the road, where he could recite history. Right? That would take some credibility away if he just looks back over history and goes, oh yeah, that, that adds to it if I just do. No. This is written close to the time that it happens. And it's birthed in history. It's birthed in real time. This is not a book of fantasy and made-up stuff. It's the real events of a real time with real people. So over the next, we go back to our timeline, over the next 200 or so years, it's some of the darkest, darkest times for followers of Jesus. Many are crucified, literally like tens and maybe hundreds of thousands of followers of Jesus who identify themselves as that are crucified, are killed violently and wiped out in many ways. And it is also the time where the church of Jesus grows like it has never grown in history since then. Isn't it interesting? Maybe a lesson for us. When things are toughest for us as followers of Jesus, and we stand up and we're counted for them with love and grace, it's our best time. It's our most influential time. We do not back down. We don't step out. We don't abandon. We step into it. Why? Because the Bible tells us so? No. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, came into this world factually, historically, gave his life, was raised back to life again. Which adds credibility to everything else that he said and does and his followers. And that's the influence. You know, the first couple of hundred years, the church's message was not crucifixion, it was resurrection. He's alive. We saw him. We were with him. We had dinner with him. We walked with him. We, we were with him, and he's alive. It's a resurrection story. And if you've really seen a dead person come back to life again, try not talking about it. <laughs> try. Just try. It'll be the lead story on your lips. And this is what happens for a couple of hundred years. And it so influences the Roman world that in 312, when Constantine becomes the solitary emperor of Rome, he does these uh, interesting things. He lifts the ban 
on Christians fully expressing their worship to God. And most historians would say, well, it's because he was sympathetic to the Christian cause. Actually, that's maybe not the case. He's a smart politician. What he realized, there was one thing that was uniting the Roman Empire because it had spread throughout the Roman Empire. And that was the story of Jesus Christ. And so he adopted it as the national religion. Do you know politicians still do that today? They do. And so now it becomes that. And now it becomes uh, free to write about it. The documents that were written secretly and hidden at times are now available to be written in public and distributed. And more copies of the Bible are now available. And then by 350, so that's what, 38 years or so later, finally these desperate pieces of uh, of writings, of letters, and eyewitness accounts, and so on, are, are bound together, but not all of it, uh, n- not exactly like we have it to, today. It would be 385 uh, before our Bible, as we know it today, New Testament, Old Testament, would be put together. Okay, that's the history. Over the next 1,500 years from there, the Bible, particularly about 1,100 years later when the printing press was developed, as I mentioned already, it now is available to everybody and masses of people can have it. Here's the historical bad news. It starts to lose its influence because over the course of the last 500 or so years, it's lost its authority. And if it doesn't have authority, it doesn't speak into our world. That's so profound over the last hundred years or so, where it's just another book. Take it or leave it. You can believe whatever you want. I said that already. Imagine for just a second that one of those first century writers joined us this morning. And we said, hey, like Paul, for example. Hey, Paul, thank you so much for writing about Jesus Like, yours is a really captivating story, how you were anti-Jesus and anti-the church, and then apparently you saw him alive. Well, that's what you say. And then it's apparently changed everything in your life, and you became this great advocate. Like, that's really, really cool. Uh, We love a lot of the stuff that you've written, Paul. Really, it's really, really good stuff. Like, Like Romans, that letter, good on you, man. That's great. It's kind of portrays the whole story of how desperately lost, saved by Jesus, redeemed by him. Now there's no condemnation. Way to go on that one, guy. That's really great. But what I don't... It's okay, Paul. Is it okay? Like this stuff about be at peace with all people as far as it depends on you. You don't know my mother-in-law, do you? Or you don't know my neighbor whose lifestyle is just appalling to me. You didn't mean that stuff, right? You were just kind of trying to be inspirational, right? And Paul, like the stuff you wrote in Ephesians to the Ephesians church about husbands love your wives like Christ loves the church, which while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you, not to suggest your wife is a sinner, though she might be. Love her like someone who doesn't love you the way you think you should. No, no, no. You're just kidding on that one, Paul, right? Like salvation, can we just stick to that theme? 
like forgiveness and grace and mercy, this other stuff, you got to tamp it down. Like if the book's going to continue to be a bestseller, got to lay off that stuff, right? Or the sexual ethic that Paul writes about as it relates to promiscuity and homosexuality and those kinds of things that are really on the table for us to think through. Paul, you're a bigot. No kidding. Like the stuff he writes there, it's disturbing. It's troubling. It's confusing at times. And sometimes we find ways of parsing it or changing the original intent because it's so hard for us. It's so disturbing for us. Paul, I love the salvation. Would you stay out of my personal life, please? Would you stay out of my morality? Would you, would you just focus on that? To which, if Paul was going to speak to us, I wonder if he wouldn't quote himself and say something like this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand by this gospel. That's the gospel of a resurrected Christ. You are saved. If, if, if you hold firmly to the word I preached you. Otherwise, the truth is you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here it is. That Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500. Go check it out. Of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. You can talk to them, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's his brother. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as the one who's abnormally born. I saw him. He was alive. I was against him. I saw him alive. Now I'm for him. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. And I really mean that because that's how that's going to end for me. And so all that other stuff, you cannot pick and choose. You can sit and try to understand. You can sit with people and read the power and the wonder of it and let his spirit who wrote it, write it again in our lives, in our minds. We can be in a small group and discuss it, not books about it, but discuss it, open it up and read it and pray through it and think through it together. We can go to school. We can go to seminary. There's so many ways that we can get this into our souls and our lives. But till it has authority in our lives. It's just another book. Interesting, confusing, captivating, but not transformative. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, including the wonder of this spirit-breathed book. And then you're going to be able to figure out how do I live as a follower of Jesus in this strange new world. Would you stand with me? Now, Jesus, um, this gospel you've given us, it has the power to change the world. It has the power to change us. It's done that for 2,000 years. And we're not exempt from it. 
Jesus, thank you that those that saw you alive wrote what they saw, wrote what they experienced, told us the truth in, in the face of death and torture. They, they just saw it and they believed it. Jesus, would you recapture our imagination with the text of the Holy Bible? May we pursue it and consume it and think about it and discuss it and have open minds to what it says, not try to rationalize it away, but not just to pass over it and go, I think I got it, but to actually absorb it and, and let it, by your Spirit's power, transform us into renewed thinking, and we'll be grateful for it. And so now, Jesus, as we go about this week, would you, once again, we ask, would you bless us and keep us? Would you make your face to shine upon us and to be gracious to us? Would you lift up your countenance to us and flood us with your wonderful peace? Thank you, King Jesus, the living hope. Amen. Have a wonderful week, everybody.